Let me invite you now to uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The reason it says Matthew 2, uh, 1 through 12 is because that's what I'm actually supposed to be saying uh, right now. But Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. This might be considered... Uh, the last of the Christmas stories we have in the Gospels. Uh, Probably this story happens when Jesus is a young toddler, maybe two years old. So the picture we have at the nativity scenes where the wise men are standing there uh, right beside the... uh, the donkey and the, and, and the, and the cow and, and Mary and Joseph probably aren't exactly accurate. They get the point. These are all of the characters involved in Christmas. But this story probably comes just a little bit after Jesus has been born, when he settled into his first family home. And then we find these words tell us the story of what happened next in his life. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, then they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I'm sorry, I'm at the age now where if I get excited while I'm reading and look away from the text, it's a long process uh, to find where exactly I was. So let me try to resume. For the sake of convenience, I'll just head to verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, we come before you. We're a very weak people, weak physically, weak mentally, especially weak spiritually. And we pray that you would come and make up for all of our weakness with your power and your strength. Lord, your people are the garden of God. And we pray you'd water us and grow us up to be more and more like you, to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We pray that your water from the word would come on those whose hearts are dead in rocky soil and would save. Lord, we pray that you would make us people who don't just read about others who are exceedingly joyful and happy and worshipful and bowed down, but you'd make us a people who are happy and joyful and worshipful of Christ and that we would worship and bow down. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I was telling my kids on the way here this morning that there are certain truths that grip you early in your life, or at least in my case, this was the case. Certain truths that gripped me early in my adult life that have been like north stars, that, that have been guiding principles and forces and really things that have gripped my soul from those early days as a Christian on until today. And whenever you get to preach on one of those themes, you're hoping that the things that have gripped you and changed your life would do the same thing in the people you love. What I want to share with you this Christmas is that the great goal of God in creating the universe is to bring men and women and boys and girls to see his glory. The great goal of God in everything he does, everything, the great goal of God in everything he does is to put his beauty, his glory, his majesty on display so that men and women and boys and girls, so that people of every tribe and every tongue and nation would worship and bow down with extreme happiness and joy. A few decades before the United States became a country, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards wrote a short little book called A Dissertation Concerning the End for Which God Created the World. He clearly did not have a modern publisher. If he did, the, goal would have had, the book would have had a, a title like Purpose or Goal or Direction. But he didn't have that modern publisher, and so the title of his book was An Essay or a Dissertation About concerning the end. And when I say the end, I don't mean, uh, the, I don't mean um, the finish line. I mean the goal or the purpose. An essay on the purpose, on the reason that God created the world. And 
Edwards' conclusion in that little book on why God created the whole earth and everything in it, in every moment of human history, his conclusion on why God created the world was this, was that God had created the world so that his glory would be displayed and his people would know him, rejoice in him, delight in him, and worship him. The main point of the book is the main point I want to make this morning, that the great goal of God in creating the universe is to bring men and women and boys and girls to see his glory and to love it and delight in it. He made everything so we could see him and enjoy him. And I want to show you how God works in the world, how he does everything for his own glory through three things, through one star, through all the stars, and then through everything in creation. The star I want to focus on is often called the star of Bethlehem. It's the star that takes center stage in this story. It really probably shouldn't be called the star of Bethlehem because the only thing the Bible ever calls this star is when the wise men call it his star. It's Christ's star. Yes, it takes them to the town of Bethlehem. That's why it gets the name the star of Bethlehem, but what makes the star special is that the star wants to put the spotlight directly on the face of Jesus Christ. It's his star, and that's the star I want to focus on as we think about how God does everything to glorify himself and to make us happy in seeing his glory. The star we're talking about, of course, is the one that we symbolize when we put a big star on the top of a Christmas tree or when a nativity scene is lit up by a giant star, and it's the one we read about in Matthew 2, 1 and 2. Let me read you that. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The star was not like all the other stars in the sky. They tend, at least from a human perspective, to stick out, stick in one particular place and stay put in one particular area of the sky. But this star had recently risen. It was a Johnny-come-lately in the star world. It was new on the scene. It had recently risen. And in fact, uh, Herod was aware that it was new, and that's why we read in verse 7 that Herod summoned the wise men secretly to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. Now, just a little aside, it's probable that when Herod delved into how long the star, how long ago the star had appeared, the number that they came up with was about two years ago. And the reason I say that is because in the very next story, Herod will then move to destroy all the children who'd been born in the last two years. And on top of that, giving us a two-year time frame can give these wise men enough time to see the star, figure out what it means, travel across the ancient Near East, and finally land in Jerusalem and then in Bethlehem by the time Jesus is a small child. So the star rises, 
Stars are usually there for the whole history of humanity, the whole history of the earth, but this one comes new on the scene. A few years uh, before this story, right at the time of Jesus' birth, these wise men follow it, and they follow the star from the east to the province of Judea. And there they found out that the king of the Jews was to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. And that star pointed them in the direction, in the right direction, but it actually pointed them way beyond what stars do. Now you've, maybe, maybe some of you were Boy Scouts or whatever they call it now, Heritage Boys or some such thing, uh, where you get a compass or you look at the stars and you figure out which way you're gonna go. Or if you read the history of sea travel, you know there was a day where you couldn't just take out your iPhone to figure out where you were going, but it required some knowledge of the stars to figure out where you were going. But even if you've learned how to guide yourself by the stars, the stars don't generally guide you to an address. They'll get you going in the right direction, but they don't get you right to the right house. But this star is not a normal star, it's a miraculous star, and we read in verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it, went, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. There! It's like, sometimes you've prayed, Lord, give, show me your will. Show me what you want me to do next. These guys got that answered. As plain as day, a star directly knock on that door. Which one? The one with the star right above it. And so that's exactly what they did. Now, notice the star was doing what God is always doing. The star is not some random moment in the history of the world. The star is fully moving in line with what God is always doing at all times through all things. You see, the miraculous star was just one of the billions of ways that God creates and directs his entire universe to show men and women his glory and to make them happy in Jesus. He wanted to guide these wise men to happiness in Christ, and so the, the star guided them to the king of the Jews. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great Joy, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return by Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Notice the words we find there. They rejoiced. They rejoiced exceedingly, they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What else in the world could produce that in a soul? Now you might get some great gifts this year, kids. Anyone think there might be something good for them under the tree? This year, something you wanted? I see one hand going up. One of you parents, Donnie thinks he's gonna get something he wants under the tree. All right, a few others think there might be a present they enjoy. I've got a, I've got a big present this year, I don't know what it is, but I, I'm excited about it. 
and I don't mean any insult to the giver, but I doubt that you're going to say, boy, he rejoiced exceedingly with great joy for more than five minutes about anything that you could put on a tree. There's just nothing that can sustain that kind of joy. What else in the world can produce that in the soul? My dad lived his life through the 80s, he tells me, just searching after the next material thing, trying to buy the best camera, trying to buy the best stuff. And every time he had the best of the best, he found it wasn't enough. Our entertainment age produces movies we can watch, shows we can binge, and reels and TikTok videos we can become addictively, addictively amused by. But none of them produce rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. I'm convinced that many times when people talk about Christmas being depressing for some people, it's because what we think of when we think about Christmas is some sort of Norman Rockwell family gathering where all the people are around the table and they're all smiling and telling good, wholesome jokes. And if you're not in on that, then Christmas stinks for you. But feasting at Christmas time is only a reflection of what brings the joy of Christmas time, which is what the star pointed to. This Christ that brings exceeding joy with great happiness and worship and delight. Listen, look at what these guys did. One sight of the child and grown men from another religion bowed down. They got on their face in front of a toddler. I don't care what culture you're from. That's not normal. None of you have probably ever been even, even remotely inclined by any toddler, no matter how amazing. Maybe you've got some toddlers on like grade 17 Suzuki violin lessons or piano lessons, and you're like, you're amazing. You should be on YouTube for 18 million people to help you enjoy your 18 seconds of fame. None of you have ever seen something like that and said, I should get down on my hands and knees. And I should empty the bank account of all the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And I should give it to this one happily, joyfully. This star was doing something supernatural. This star was doing something miraculous. This star was doing what God always does in the universe. He was guiding men and women to see his glory. And when they see his glory, he was guiding them to enjoy it, to love it, to delight in it, to savor it. I fear that even though we've looked carefully at the words and phrases of this passage, we might miss the grandeur of this miracle. These men, beloved, were Gentiles. That means they were people who weren't Jewish. They weren't inclined to go to Israel for any reason. They weren't inclined to go to Israel to worship. They were not inclined to go to Israel to worship children. Israel, at this time, was not a particularly evangelistic nation. Israel did not hand out tracts or host Billy Graham crusades to win Gentiles to their God. And on top of this, the Bible tells us that Gentiles like these wise men only ever resisted God. And so for them to actually move across countries, come to a particular place and bow down before a Jewish child 
is a mark of God's saving, converting, and transforming work in their life. This was a miracle. For God to lead them by a star, to come and worship the King of Kings, was a miracle. And it was a miracle that was completely in line with what God always does in the world, which is display his glory and lead men to see his glory and then worship him and delight in him. Now let's turn our attention to the something broader. We've looked at one star, looked at one star. There are, I read this week, 200 billion trillion stars. So we're just, we're just scratching the surface on stars when we look at this one star. Let's turn our attention to the other stars in the universe. This one star was accomplishing the end for which God created the world. This one star was working to bring the peoples of the earth, to use John Piper's words, to see and savor Jesus Christ. And what's been gripping me this Christmas is this star was not alone. In fact, all the stars in the sky that we have, that are there today, have the same goal to display the glory of God and to move men and women to the happy, joyful worship of God. Let's do a little star study for a minute, a little broader context, if you will. Genesis 1.16 tells us about the creation of the world. And Genesis 1.16, when it tells us about the creation of the world, says God made the two great lights. He made the greater light to rule the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to rule the night, that's the moon, and then it says, and the stars. God made the stars. The Bible declares, though, that the stars are not just miscellaneous balls of burning gas scattered across the universe from impersonal, some impersonal Big Bang. No, the stars are God's personal creation. And not only are they His personal creation, but there is personal concern Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Each star displays God's bright glory, his burning power, his light that pierces the darkness of the universe. And each and every one of them is a worship leader. This morning during worship, my wife turned to me and she goes, doesn't Ward do such a good job? Aren't you so glad he's the worship pastor here? And I said, I'm so glad. And in addition to Ward, there are billions of stars all doing the same thing, all aiming to be worship leaders all aiming to call for our worship. Psalm 19, many of you could quote it by heart. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The stars are just always talking. They're always saying, God is great. God is glorious. God is to be praised. God is majestic. God is powerful. Every single one of these stars. 
When I was 12 years old-ish, right around that time, when I was about 12 years old, I was out in the woods, far away from any city lights, far away from what they call light pollution. I don't really like that term though because I really like electric lighting. But anyway, um, I was far away from so-called light pollution, away from the light of the city, out in the middle of nowhere, where I could look straight up into the sky and there was no city lights to dull the night sky and it was pitch black around me. And I looked up into the sky, not a cloud in it, and I had never seen the stars shine like that. I had never seen so many thousands of stars. I had never seen each of them be so bright and so piercing, literally coming across millions of miles to to shine light with an incredible intensity right down on planet Earth. I had never seen anything like that. And it's amazing, I don't remember exactly what age I was when that happened. I actually don't remember where I was, somewhere in Western Canada. I don't remember who I was with in the middle of the night. But I will never forget those stars. They just showed so much glory, so much radiance, so much beauty. And what I was seeing was just a fraction of what's actually there. Our modern telescopes have shown us that a typical galaxy, I love that you throw around language like that, typical galaxy, as if galaxies were ordinary things, but but a typical galaxy has 100 billion stars. And we estimate there are 200 trillion galaxies. So that would mean there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. Or I'm told by people who can count that high, that's 200 sextillion. I can't remember my kids' names sometimes. But God remembers the names of every single one of those stars. And every single one of those upheld, ignited, named stars says, I am glorious. I am majestic. I am the fire that lights all other fires. I am the light that lights all other lights. Worship me. Glorify me. Bow down before me. Give me everything. I deserve all of your honor and thanks. That's what every star says. Everything God does, he does to display his glory and to incite our praise. We we began by looking at a miracle, the miracle of the star of Bethlehem. And what was that miracle for? It was to draw men to see Jesus and to worship him. We then looked at the stars of creation. What are those stars for? To bring men and women to worship God and to find joy and happiness in him. Now let us briefly consider everything else God does. Think of it. Think of 
Well, what else does God do? He makes stars, but there's a few other things he does too. Think of history for a moment. History. There have not been billions and trillions of years of human history, but there have been thousands. What's the goal of it all? Wars and rumors and wars, nations rising, nations falling. What's it all about? Well, it's very interesting. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, we get a summary of human history in many ways. In Romans chapter 9, God speaks about his chosen people. He talks about Pharaoh and Moses. Romans chapter 10, he talks about how Israel rejected God and the Gentiles came to know God through Jesus. Romans chapter 11 talks about how more and more Gentiles will come to know God, and that'll lead to more and more Jews coming to know God. And he paints this whole sweep of history. And when he's done, what does he say? He says at the end of Romans chapter 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The star of Bethlehem is meant to display God's glory so people worship. All the stars display God's glory so people will worship. All of human history is meant to display God's glory so people will worship. Why does he save people? Why does God save people? Do you look down through human history and say, you know, that's a bad old world, but you all are a nice lot just to cut above the rest. Let's get you out of this mess. Now why did he save even one person? There was nothing in you that could jerk a tear from his eye. You were a pure rebel. The only thing that would put a tear in his eye towards your sin was his own mere mercy. And he did that, he extended his mercy to sinners like you and me for his glory so that he could be displayed, so that he could be seen. Ephesians tells us he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Give you one more example and I'm gonna move on. First Peter Chapter 2 tells us why we're saved, why God saved us and redeemed us, why he brought us to himself. And it says it very beautifully. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and... Glorify God on the day of his visitation. He saves you for his glory. He moves special stars for his glory. He places all stars for his glory. All of human history is for his glory. The entire thing, every single thing God does 
is for his glory and so that we will rejoice in it and be happy in it. Well, let's look at about four implications of that truth. Okay, so if you're just like, that was a lot for Christmas morning. Okay, wow. I wasn't ready for that. Let me just summarize. In a world where everybody is living for their own self-actualization, they're living to be the best, their best selves, and Christian kids get infected with this so hard, They may not go to extremes, but it's in Christian ways. How do I realize me? How do I actualize me? How do I be the best me I can be for Jesus? Don't forget for Jesus, but but it starts with me. Oh, and Christian middle-aged people and older people get infected by this too. Pretty bad too. We used to call it living for your own kingdom. Living for yourself. In that world... God is doing everything for his own glory and for your joy. Everything. Miracles like moving the star. Creation like making all stars. History, salvation, you name it. There's not one molecule that moves, that doesn't move to advance the display of his glory and to invite people in to rejoice in him. Four implications. Knowing this shows us the tremendous wickedness of our sin. Knowing this shows us the tremendous wickedness of our sin. Think about that. God aims to glorify himself. In all God does, he aims to show off his own glory so that we can enjoy him. But what do we do? When we sin, we move against the very grain of the universe. We move against everything the universe is intended to do. Against God's direction in history, against God's purposes in predestination, against God's purposes in creation, against God's purposes in miracle. Sin presses against everything God desires and works towards. God works miracles in the earth. He shines radiantly in all creation. And how do we respond when left to ourselves? Romans 1 tells us his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Everything he is has been put on display in creation. And what do we do with all of that? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we cover it up. You know, it's amazing. I told you about this time I was 12-ish in Western Canada, looking at all the stars. And it's amazing because that memory has been just a, you've got, we've all got these, just one of those touchstone memories in my life. To see that sky with all those stars and all that beauty and all that majesty. And as I was thinking about that, this sermon and thinking about the stars, it dawned on me that when I was 12 years old and I had that unbelievable display of God's majestic stars put out in front of me, to the best of my memory, I didn't think one thought about God. Or if I'm trying to be more biblical, whatever thoughts I had about God, I immediately suppressed and kept them at bay. I was shown beauty and glory blazing in front of my eyes. And all I cared about was stars. 
If you wanted to, you could do a little study this afternoon of how often the people of God in the Old Testament who were meant to worship God because of the stars actually started worshiping stars. That was me. And that was you. That was absolutely you. Every one of you. God gives good gifts. Music, talents, art, vacations, friendships, family. He gives the good gift of sex. He gives power, which can be used well. Fame and popularity. And we love these things for themselves. We latch on to them for themselves. The things that were made to cause us to worship, we love for themselves and on their own. And they turn to dust in our mouths. They poison our souls. We love all of God's good gifts. And on top of that, we think that's spiritual. We'll hear people say, oh, you know, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. I mean, I love to go for a good walk in the mountains. I love to stare at the stars. If you love to go for a good walk in the mountains and stare at the stars and it does not lead you to worship God, this is the height of wickedness, according to the Bible. Not the height of spirituality. It's the height of rebellion that you can look at the good things God gives and love them for them. Oh, would you pray? This room is filled with people who love God's good gifts and hate God. How terrible is that sin that God would set up an entire universe? I am for me. The stars are to glorify me. When I do miracles with stars, it is to bring people to me. When I arrange human history, it is to bring people to me. I arrange for the wise men to come from the east for my glory and for my and for their joy. I do it all for that. And then these miserable little sinners say, I'm going a different way. It's all going to be about me. And we say, how on earth could God have an eternal hell? It's so unjust for God to have an eternal hell. I mean, why would he throw people in hell for all eternity? Because of sin. Because sin is fundamentally opposed to everything God is and everything God does. And his infinite glory is being offended and rebelled against and pressed against in every act of our sin. And so it is right for him to move, to condemn it, if we will not get with the purpose of the entire universe, which is to glorify him. So what do you live your life for? What do you live your life for? You know, a lot of times the life of a Christian and non-Christian don't always look super different. Sometimes they do. But a lot of times they can look very similar. But there's something at the core that's fundamentally different. What's it for? And you can try to live a good moral life, but if it's for you, it's evil. It's against everything God is doing because everything God is doing is for his own glory and to bring you joy in seeing it. But if all that you're doing, no matter how meek, unnoticed, uneventful, un unexceptional, 
If it's being done for God's glory, it is radiating and resounding with the same song that's being sung by the star of Bethlehem and the same song that's being sung by every star. Your life is in line with everything that's happening in human history. If it's happening for the glory of God. Second thing I want us to notice is not just the terrible wickedness of our sin, but the incredible grace of God's salvation. I was thinking about these wise men, and I told you a little bit about this earlier in the sermon. I was thinking about who these guys were. You've got to remember that before they saw the star, they'd seen stars. A lot of stars. No light pollution back then. They'd seen plenty of nights full of stars. And we know that they would have been just like the people we heard about in Romans chapter 1. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They suppressed the knowledge of God. They looked at creation and shoved it down, shoved it aside, didn't enjoy it, didn't worship God for it. And so what a miracle that guys like that would decide, I'm leaving everything I know, I'm taking my money with me, and I'm going to go and worship the one who's being born, King of the Jews. These guys who'd rebelled against everything God had shown were now given more light to follow straight on to the Savior. I think that is just incredible. And that's what happens in every single Christian's heart. We're going along, sinning against the light we have, ignoring whatever displays of God's glory he gives us, and then right when we could easily justifiably be damned, he comes and gives us more light, we could even say better light, the light of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners, and we're brought to worship him and love him. Two things and then I'm done. Third thing I want you to see is the marvelous way all of God's works are synchronized. The marvelous way all of God's works are synchronized. I've been saying that the glory of God, sorry, that the goal of God in creating the universe is to show people his glory and bring them to worship him. What I want to highlight, and I've already been saying this, but I want to make sure it's very clear, is that all of these works work together. What was the point of the star to bring people to worship and glorify God? What's the point of stars to bring people to glorify God and worship him? What's the point of history and everything else to bring people to worship God and to enjoy him forever? In his miracles, in his creation, and in his providence, he's always working Think about it. We, we looked at the star, but we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about Bethlehem. Think about what it took to keep Bethlehem on the map. You ever thought about Bethlehem still being on the map? We know Bethlehem was on the map about a thousand years before Jesus because it's David's city. And lots of cities don't make it a thousand years. Anyone know where Ephesus is today? Or Philippi? or to bring it a little closer to home, Airdrie, Fudge, and Ghostlick, Kentucky no longer exist. 
They're ghost towns. You can find a great list on Wikipedia. Cities in the U.S. that no longer exist. Cities come and go. But the roads in Bethlehem kept being rebuilt. The homes in Bethlehem kept being built. The families in Bethlehem kept having children. So that when Jesus came, there was a little Bethlehem to fulfill the promise too. The miracle star was God working on his purposes. All the stars are God's working on his purposes. The upholding of little towns and cities and bloodlines, all God fulfilling his purposes. We all want to live a life of constant miracles. Can I get an amen? Right, we want to pray, miracle. Problem, miracle. Suffering, miracle. That's how we want to live. We just want to, we want to live one miracle after the next. And God doesn't do that. If he did, they wouldn't call them, they'd call them normals. But in the preserving of a little city, in the preserving of a little family, the same purpose that moves a star is happening. It's all one. It's all the purposes of God to glorify himself and to bring people to glorify him and enjoy him. And if you are living the most inconsequential life, you aren't. There are no little people, said Francis Schaeffer, and there are no little places. Everyone who's living for the glory of God is in line with where the universe is going and with what God is doing, whether they're doing it in a big way or a small way. And here's my last point, and then I'll sit down. We can have, uns we can have unbelievable confidence in the unstoppable progress of missions. We can have unbelievable confidence in the unstoppable progress of missions. The star, the stars, all of history, all of salvation, all of it's doing one thing, moving so that Gentiles will see Jesus, so that Jews and Gentiles will see Jesus. I wish I had more time, but this little moment that we see in Matthew chapter 2, it was prayed for in Psalm 72, where the psalm in the Old Testament prayed that kings would come to Jesus and bow down and offer him gold. And then in the book of Revelation, we're told the kings of the earth will bring their treasures to Jesus' city. This is where everything is going in the universe unstoppably. And so whatever money you give will not be wasted. Whatever prayers you pray are not futile. Whatever opportunities to share the gospel you take are not wasted. If any of you are led to actually uproot your life and go to the nations to take the gospel, you are participating in an unstoppable task. You may suffer, you may have difficulty, but the mission you're on cannot fail. It's the same one that every star is for, the miracle star was for, all history is for, the promises of God are for, everything God is doing, he is doing to bring himself glory and to delight us in seeing 
him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we pray that you would please pour out your spirit on us to see what you're doing in the world, to marvel at it, to love it, and to get confidence in it. That we would not sin against you by pursuing our own path or our own will. But Lord God, we would just marvel that we who were against you have been brought to know you and serve you and love you and even rejoice exceedingly in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.